Welcome to another episode of Come Follow Me, A Disciple's Journey. This episode will cover 3 Nephi chapters 8 through 10. Let's jump right in here. Uh, beginning of chapter 8 says, uh, Mormon says, And it came to pass that according to our record, and we know our record to be true, for behold, it was a just man who did keep the record. So who is he talking about here? If we flip back to chapter 5, um, 3 Nephi chapter 5, verse 9 Mormon tells us, but uh, behold, there are records which do contain all the proceedings of this people, and a shorter but truer account was given by Nephi. Uh, Therefore, I have made my record of these things according to the record of Nephi. So, we got this directly from Nephi. So, probably right around chapter uh, 8 here, uh, as we start to see all the things that are going to happen when Christ is crucified, probably starts with uh, a pretty direct quotation and from the the record of Nephi that that Mormon is taking, uh, the the book of Third Nephi probably came mostly from the record of Nephi, uh, with Mormon transcribing it, uh, as opposed to when I when I, so when I say that the record of Nephi that's opposed to the large plates that were the history of the people that were continually being added onto, uh, and kept by the kings and the rulers and things. Uh, those those that that historical record is. A, a lot of where uh, Mormon gets his record from and he is, you know, abridging that for us. Uh, but third Nephi seems to be somewhat different in that he left, he left that and came to more Nephi's specific record. And, uh, so that's just something to keep in mind. And this Nephi is going to be the Nephi in chapter 11, who the Lord calls forward to him and, uh, gives him the the authority to baptize and, and things. So that's just something uh, to note. He then goes on to say that how do they, how do they know that he was a just man? Well, for he truly did many miracles in the name of Jesus. And there was not any man who could do a miracle in the name of Jesus, save he were cleansed every wit in iniquity. So uh, Elder, John, uh, Elder Von J. Featherstone said in 1975, people cannot hide sin. You cannot mock God. And hold the Lord's holy priesthood and pretend to propose that you are his servant. I know of a great man who held his dead son in his arms and said, In the name of Jesus Christ and by the power and authority of the holy Melchizedek priesthood, I command you to live. And the dead boy opened up his eyes. This great brother could not have possibly done that thing had he been looking at at a pornographic piece of material a few nights before, or if he had been involved in other transgressions of that kind. The priesthood has to have a pure conduit to operate. We all, men and women, Disciples of Jesus Christ have access, especially and specifically those of us who have uh, been through the temple and made sacred covenants, have access to the power of the priesthood, to the power of God. But to access that power, we have to have authority. Uh, And authority comes from our, uh, largely from our covenants. We also have to have power. The power comes from our purity. Uh, President Nelson, a few years back, and it's something I cite all the time and quote all the time uh, in his talk, The Price of Priesthood Power, talks all about this and about paying the price. And then it has to be intentional. And this is what Mormon's talking about in in referencing Nephi, that he was cleansed every whit from sin and iniquity, which gave him a power, the power to perform miracles and was was a righteous man. Uh, Elder Holland also said, in referencing uh, the same thought, uh, 
Now, my young friends of both the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood, not every prayer is answered so immediately, and not every priesthood declaration can command the renewal or sustaining of life. Sometimes the will of God is otherwise. But, young men, you will learn, if you have not already, that in frightening, even perilous moments, your faith and your priesthood will demand the very best of you, and the best you can call down from heaven. You Aaronic priesthood boys will not use your priesthood in exactly the same way an ordained elder uses the Melchizedek priesthood, but all priesthood bearers must be instruments in the hands of God, and to be so, you must, as Joshua said, sanctify yourselves. And I would add that it includes men and women uh, accessing the power of the priesthood, accessing the power of God. We must sanctify ourselves. As chapter 8 goes on, we get the uh, the crucifixion of Christ is uh, has happened, and great destruction and calamity starts to take place in the American land here. Uh, interestingly, uh, Mormon and Nephi, obviously Nephi getting writing the record, Mormon including it for us, is sure to say this. So in verse, here's what's interesting. Uh, in verse 14, it says, a many gr- And many great and notable cities were sunk, and many were burned, and many were uh, shaken, till the buildings thereof had fallen. So he doesn't name them, he just says many great notable cities. He just like, lot, there's lots of destruction. But in verse 8, it says, And the city of Zarahemla did take fire. It's the only city that is specifically named that caught fire. Uh, that's just important to me because Samuel prophesied that Zarahemla would be burned. It wasn't going to be covered up with land or sunk in the depths of the sea or broken apart by an earthquake. It was going to be burned. That's specifically what Samuel said. And the Lord, through his, and the words of the prophets, uh, are fulfilled in every instance. Exactly. And here we have another testimony of that. Uh, in verse 12, uh, just something interesting to note that the whole face of the land was changed. It talks about this throughout this chapter, that uh, there's just so much damage and upheaval that the the land looks different than it did before. And in verse 20, it says, And it came to pass that there was a thick darkness upon all the face of the land, insomuch that the inhabitants thereof who had not fallen could feel the vapor of darkness. So, as I mentioned in my introduction to this week, and talking about the light and the darkness, this is this is one of those verses that really, you know, got me on this path and continue me on that path of of studying about light and darkness and Christ as the light and what our responsibility is. Um, but think about you know the light of the world. Jesus Christ had been crucified; his body sat in a sepulcher for three days, and during that time. In the Nephite land, in the Nephite realm, there was such darkness that they could feel it. No fire could be lit. There was no light to even be had. And how did they how did they react? Well, it says, And in one place they were heard to cry, saying, Oh, that we had repented before this great and terrible day, and then would our brethren have been spared, that, and they would not have been burned in that great city of Zarahemla. And verse 25 is similar. In another place they were heard to cry uh, and mourn, saying, Oh, that we had repented before this great and terrible day, and had not killed and stoned the prophets and cast them out. Then, uh, excuse me, I turned too many pages. Then would our mothers and our father and our fair daughters and our children have been spared and not have been buried up in that great city of Moroni Ha. And thus were 
And thus were the howlings of the people great and terrible. These verses remind me of a uh, talk from April 2014. President Monson, he actually is quoting, uh, I don't know. I, I, I mean, maybe I should know and maybe you know who John Greenleaf Whittier is. I don't know. I Maybe I should. Uh, but President Monson's actually quoting him. And he said, uh, Of all the words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these it might have been. Brothers and sisters, as we treat others with love and con- consideration, we will avoid such regrets. That's what President Monson said. Um, and as I read those verses in verses 24 and 25, these people lamenting their loss. And what, and what I read was, it might have been, had they just repented. The, the arm of... Uh, of mercy was extended to them and they they rejected it uh, and we're going to get into that right now as we move into transition to, to chapter 9 uh, so the, at the beginning of chapter 9 all the inhabitants of the earth and by that I think we can understand probably the people in the Nephite realm heard and what did they hear Woe, woe unto this people, woe unto the inhabitants of the whole earth, except they shall repent. For the devil laugheth, and his angels rejoice because of the slain of their fair sons and daughters of my people. And it is because of their iniquity and abominations that they are fallen. So they hear the words of of Christ speaking to them. And uh, I have this quote here I wanted to read, and I misplaced who said it. I think it's Elder Holland. I recalled the words of the Lord to all the inhabitants of the earth, as recorded in the Book of Mormon. Woe, woe unto the, this people! Woe unto the inhabitants of the whole earth, except they shall repent. For the devil laugheth, and his angels rejoice, because of the slain of the fair sons and, and daughters of my people. It is our sins that make the devil laugheth, our sorrow that brings him counterfeit joy. Although the devil laughs, his power is limited. Today I want to convey in absolutely certain terms that the adversary cannot make us do anything. He does not lie at our doors, as scriptures say, and uh, and he follows us each day. Every time we go out, every decision we make, we are either choosing to move in his direction or the direction of our Savior. But the adversary must depart if we tell him to depart. He cannot influence us unless we allow him to do so, and he knows that. The only time he can affect our minds and our bodies, our very spirits, is when we allow him to do so. In other words, we do not have to have to succumb to his enticements. Uh, moving on in in the chapter, there's uh, there's a phrase that is almost exactly word for word repeated. There is a, some slight variation uh, at times, but at the end of verse five, at the end of verse seven, at the end of verse eight, at the end of verse nine, at the end of verse ten, and at the end of verse eleven, uh, the Savior says this, uh, and their abominations hide their abominations and iniquities. Uh, from before my face, that the blood of the prophets and the saints shall not come up any more unto me against them. So that, that came from verse 5. And just to show you that I'm not making things up, I'll read uh, verse 11, or verse 10. Uh, Therefore, because of their wickedness and casting out the prophets and stoning those whom I did send to declare unto them concerning their wickedness and abominations, that the blood of the prophets and the saints whom I sent among them might not cry unto me from the ground against them. So he's saying these people were covered and these people were killed so that the, the the blood of the prophets and the saints would stop crying out against them. What I read in that is that that is mercy. I read mercy. If these people were going to continue to sin and and further damn themselves and cause damnation to come heap upon themselves, 
the Lord was merciful in destroying them so that they could stop doing those things. They would stop heaping up damnation upon their own souls. Another thing I read in in this chapter is that the price of rejecting the prophets is a great price. Uh, He repeats over and over that it's about the prophets and the, the blood of the prophets and the saints crying up. They'd rejected the prophets. They'd killed them. And in verse or chapter 10, it says, And the more righteous part of the people were saved. And it was they who received the prophets and stoned them not. So who the, the people who were listening and hearing the, vo- the voice of the Savior, the people who were in Bountiful in chapter 11 to, to receive the Savior, they're the people who didn't kill the prophets. It seems like a pretty low bar to set. But if we take that into our own life, it's the people who accept the prophets and re- don't reject their words. And in our life, are we accepting the prophets or are we rejecting them? Are we in like manner or in a uh, you know metaphorical way, are we stoning the prophets? Are we rejecting their words and casting them out and uh, considering them to be a thing of naught? Or are we accepting them and heeding their words and listening to what they have to say and what the Lord has to say through them. Uh, because it seems that the rejection of prophets comes with a, a very heavy price on a societal level and also on a personal and uh, familial f- family level, right? That as we reject the prophets in our own life and our family's life, there will be consequences. But the flip side of that, and the beautiful thing about the gospel is there's always a flip side uh, because the Lord works in these absolutes. The flip side is as we accept the prophets and heed them, there there is a protection. Um, and, and as a matter of fact, that's what I have written down in chapter 10 uh, next to that verse, uh, that they were spared and not sunk and buried up in the earth and they were not drowned in the depths of the sea and they were not burned with fire. Neither were they fallen upon and crushed to death. They were not carried away in the whirlwind. Neither were they overpowered by the vapor of smoke and darkness. These are the people who are, he's talking about uh, that were did not reject and stone the prophets. They are the ones who were saved. It seems that their acceptance, or at least in this case, their failure to kill the prophet, and at least that much, uh, came with with protection. They weren't overcome by the darkness. And that seems like a very powerful promise. As I... As I think about what I've been studying about the light and the darkness, uh, I think that promise is most powerful to me. At the, at the end, this is, this is in chapter 10, by the way, at the end of verse 13. Neither were they overpowered by the vapor of smoke and of darkness. And I, that's what I want in my life. That's what I want in my family's life is to not be overpowered by the darkness that I see swirling all around. I want to not be carried away by the whirlwind, by every wind of doctrine, wherein they lie in wait to deceive I don't, I don't want my family or me to be carried away in that whirlwind. I don't want to be overcome by the vapor of darkness. Rather, I want to, to cling to the light and have the light and be protected. And what I see in chapters 9 and 10 is that one key way to do that is by heeding the words of the prophets. Follow the prophet. Following the prophet comes with protection. Last week and the week before, we talked about that repentance comes with protection uh, repentance is is a powerful uh, form of of protection. Well, so too then is following the prophet. It protects us from from harm and danger, both physical and spiritual. Back to chapter nine, 
verse 13 says, And oh, all you that are spared because you are more righteous than they, will you not now return unto me? And repent of your sins and be converted that I may heal you. Yea, verily I say unto you, if you will come unto me, ye uh, shall have eternal life. Behold, mine arm of mercy is extended towards you, and whosoever will come, will I receive. And blessed are those who come unto me. Elder Holland said, Come, Christ says lovingly, come follow me. Wherever you are going, first come and see what I do. See where and how I spend my time. Learn of me, walk with me, talk with me, believe me. Listen to me pray, and in turn you will find answers to your own prayers. God will bring rest to your own souls. Come follow me. Uh, and here's another quote that I failed to write down who said it, so I apologize. But by coming unto Christ, every soul can see, feel, and know of a surety that Christ suffered and atoned for our sins, that we may have eternal life. If we repent, we will not suffer needlessly. Thanks to him, wounded souls may be healed and broken, hearts may be mended. There is no burden that he cannot ease or remove. He knows about our infirmities and our sickness. I promise and testify to you that when all doors seem to be closed, when everything else seems to fail, he will not fail you. Christ will help and is a way out. Whether the struggle is with an addiction, depression, or something else, he knows how to succor his people. Marriages and families that are struggling for whatever reason, economic challenges and bad media influences, or family dynamics will feel a calming influence from heaven. It is comforting to feel and see that he arose from the dead with healing in his wings. That because of him, we will meet and embrace again those beloved ones who have passed away. Verily, our, our conversion unto him is rewarded with our healing. It reminds me of a talk from Elder Holland in, I think, 2006 called Broken Things to Mend, where he said, he knows the way because he is the way. He knows how to fix us because he made us. He knows the path that we should take because he is the path that we should take. And so when he says, come follow me, he knows that way because he is the way. All right, so at the end of chapter 9, uh, we get this declaration from the Savior that he is no longer going to accept burnt offerings as a sacrifice. And instead, he says, And you shall offer for a sacrifice unto me a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And whoso cometh unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, him will I baptize with fire and with the Holy Ghost, even as the Lamanites, because of their faith in me, at the time that their conversion were baptized with fire and with the Holy Ghost, and they knew it not. All right, so he says, what you're going to offer to me is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Now, this seems like, and it is, a radical shift. He's saying, the law of Moses is done now. The law is complete. I fulfilled it. Stop offering burnt sacrifices. So it is, it's a radical shift. However, interestingly, it's not a new concept. Uh, There are... Not many, but they do exist. References to this contrite heart, bro- uh, a broken heart, and a contrite spirit in the Old Testament and previous to this time in the Book of Mormon. Uh, for example, uh, Psalms fifty-one talks about this, uh, and it seems like the people in the Book of Mormon knew this, and they would have had probably Psalms uh, in the brass plates. Uh, additionally, I, Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, talks about the role of the Savior coming to, uh, uh, what does he say? What does it say? Uh, it says to, that the role of the Savior is to um, heal the brokenhearted. That's all right. I, I just ha- was having a mental cramp there. I couldn't think of it. Uh, it's to heal the brokenhearted. This is the, Isaiah 61 is actually the section of scripture that, Christ um, got up and read 
in the synagogue in Luke chapter four. And then he said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And he's saying, I am the savior. I am the, I am he. That's what he's saying. Um, and so there's this concept of a broken heart and the savior's job role was to, uh, heal them. And here we combine that with, you know, like I said, Psalms 51, Isaiah 61, uh, with 35 chapter nine, you get that we are to offer for, to him a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And that he then takes that and mends them, gives us something new, but we have to give him all of ourself. So as a matter of fact, uh, that is exactly what Elder Christofferson said. He said, the savior said he would no longer accept burnt offerings of animals. The gift or, or sacrifice he will now accept is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. You can offer the Lord the gift of your broken or repentant heart and your contrite or obedient spirit. In reality, it is the gift of yourself, what you are and what you are becoming. Is there something in you or in your life that is uh, impure or unworthy? When you get rid of it, that is a gift to the Savior. Is there a good habit or a quality that is lacking in your life? When you adopt it and make it part of your character, you are giving a gift to the Lord. So I want to just point that out, that this, this is a radical shift, but it's something that those who had been studying, those who were prepared, like Nephi, uh, Nephi in third Nephi is who I'm talking about, were ready and prepared to receive. Uh, those who, people who were truly living the law of Moses and the spirit of the law of Moses, knowing that it was pointing their, them to Christ, were ready and prepared for this. And I liken this to our day in, in several ways in that, you know, we have shifts in uh, church policies and procedures. We go from home teaching to ministering, right? We go from uh, three-hour church to two-hour church and a, and a home-centered church-supported uh, program, right? Those people, and I truly believe this, who were truly living the spirit of uh, of home teaching had almost no change in in when ministering was announced. It's what they were already doing. They were already ministering. They didn't care what counted and what didn't count. They cared about the other person. They cared about the spirits and the souls of those who who they served and were ministers to. The peop- those who were truly teaching and living the gospel within the walls of their home and teaching their children, nothing really changed when two-hour church came and home-centered church came and come follow me came. They were happy and rejoiced to have a, a, a resource like Come Follow Me that they could rely on t- to help uh, augment and magnify what they were already doing. Nephi and his and the, and the 12 that were called and the people who accepted and received the Savior and Bountiful, those who were truly ready and prepared, they, it, they were ready. They knew that the law of Moses was going to be fulfilled. They were living the spirit of the law. Yes, they went and they um, offered sacrifices. But it was like in, in Alma 25, it says, Yea, they did keep the law of Moses, for it was expedient that they should keep the law of Moses, as yet, for it was not all fulfilled. But notwithstanding the law of Moses, they did look forward to the coming of Christ, considering that the law of Moses was a type of his coming, and believing that they must keep those outward performances until the time that he should be he should be revealed unto them. Now, they did not suppose that salvation came by the law of Moses, but the law of Moses did serve to strengthen their faith in Christ. And thus they did retain a hope through faith unto eternal salvation, relying upon the spirit of prophecy, which spake of those things to come. It became as though it were, 
were dead to them. I mean, the law of Moses, they did it because they knew they were commanded to do it. But it, it's not what they were worshiping. It's not what their focus was. Christ was always their focus. So when he comes and says, do this, offer to me this, they just had to stop doing something. They didn't have to start doing something. They didn't have to start offering a broken heart and a contrite spirit. They were already doing that. They just had to stop you didn't have to start doing, if you're, if those who are truly living the gospel in their home, again, I'm not saying that this was, was me. I'm not saying this was my family. I, I'd like to think we were trying, but those people who are truly diligent and were living and teaching the gospel in the walls of their own home to their families, didn't have to start doing home church, didn't have to start doing come follow me study. What they did is they stopped going to a third hour of church. That's what happened. That was the change for them. And so as we see this shift and Christ comes and says, stop offering sacrifices, I think there are parallels in our day, in our time. As we focus on him, we will be filled with his spirit and his light, and that will guide us to be living in a way that we will be prepared. When the church changes policies and procedures, we'll already be there. It won't, it won't, we won't be like, whoa, that was, that was, I have to do this and I got to do this and I got to do that. Doing, 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 that's a pharisaical way of looking at the gospel. Do this, don't do this. Spurgeon W. Kimball talks about how talked about how we shouldn't have a list of things and do's and don'ts on on the Sabbath day to keep it holy. He said, "Here are some ideas." He did. He then said, "Here are some ideas that might help you, but we shouldn't have this list of to do's and to don'ts on the Sabbath. You live the law, the spirit of the law. If you're worshiping and you're focused on the Savior, you will naturally honor the Sabbath day." So anyway, I hope that and that's just kind of I got a little passionate there, but. As we focus on the Savior, he leads us on in a way that as changes come from the prophet, we are ready and prepared for them, to accept them and adopt them because it's things that the Lord and the Spirit have already been teaching us. Is why we can receive personal revelation. Now, that's not to say we, should need, we needed to wait till the prophet said, stop going to the third hour, right? We needed to wait for that, to stop going. We shouldn't have just been like, yeah, I'm doing it at home. I'm, I'm good already. But when that change came, those there were people who were ready and prepared for that. All right, we're moving to chapter ten. Just a, f- a few quick thoughts here. Um, uh, first is that uh, for so great was the astonishment. This is verse two was the astonishment of the people that they did cease lamenting and howling for the loss of their kindred which had been slain. Therefore, there was silence in all the land for the space of many hours. This calamity. This destruction, the darkness, the thunderings, the lightnings, the fires, the tempests, the whirlwinds, the trials, the hard times, the not getting the job that you wanted, the losing a loved one, the depression, the the hard things that you go through. When we turn to the Lord, what they serve as is preparation to hear his voice more clearly. There may be other things. We all have our own personal plan of salvation that the Lord has outlined for us, for us to learn and grow the way that he wants us and needs us to learn and grow. But at the bare minimum, calamity and hardship and trial serve to prepare us to hear him. They heard his, there was darkness and utter darkness and there's confusion and then they hear the Savior speaking to them. And there was silence in the land as they sat pondering. And then he came, came back and, uh, and spoke to them again. And then later, they gather into Bountiful. 
and their 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 focus has shifted and changed. I'll get to that when we talk about chapter eleven. But now they're focused on Christ, and now they're ready to hear Him. And even then, it took three times of hearing the word of, of the Father before they understood it. But over time, and as they focused on it, they learned to understand the the words of the of the uh, of Christ and to hear to hear Him. They were prepared. So uh, that's the point I wanted to make: is hard times and trials serve as um, a way for the Lord to prepare us to remove other distractions and to focus us on Him so that we can hear Him. Uh, the other note I wanted to make, and I kind of already talked about it in chapter 12, and that is just the following of the prophets, that as we follow and heed the prophets, we get protection. Uh, Elder Anderson spoke when President Nelson was uh, sustained as the prophet, and he talk, was talking about President Nelson, and he he read some quotes from President Nelson. Basically, I'll just summarize them. But um, basically, uh, the the attitude that President Nelson had in, in his life in following the prophet. And one of the things that was said about him is that uh, when the prophet speaks, he doesn't ask whether he's speaking as a prophet or as a man. He asks, what can I do to be more like him? And uh, additionally, he, uh, rather than... Uh, seeking to put a question mark at the end of what the prophet says, he he s- seeks to put an exclamation point. And I think that that's the kind of attitude that we need to have, and that as we have it, we will have protection. So rounding out chapter 10, there's an interesting ver- uh, point in verse 18 that says, And it came to pass in the ending of the thirty and fourth year, uh, behold, I'll show unto you that the people of Nephi who were get spared, they gathered around, uh, Mormon just says, I'm going to show you that they saw Christ. And it's interesting that he says at the end of the 34th year, because in chapter 8 it says the beginning of the 34th year is when the signs of his death came. And so you get, you're like, well, is this, so is this an entire year? There are varying thoughts on the timing of this. And uh, what's interesting and stands out to me is that there are even this, there is even this question, because Mormon was pretty good at telling us time, like, this happened, specific thing happened, and it was in the 30 and 7th year of the reign of the judges. So it's like, he's very good at telling us time. And he was very good at telling us the exact time, exact day of the fulfillment of um, the, the prophecy of of Christ's birth and, as, and of his death, right? But now he's very vague about when Christ came. And now as we get into chapter 11 through 28 in the visitation of Christ to the people here, time seems to just stand still. We have no idea really how much time passes. And I think that's on purpose because we get this, they're, he's teaching eternal truths and time doesn't matter. And it's for us in our day and it's for the people in the future and it's for people in the past and it's these eternal truths. And so why that's interesting to me is because Mormon and Moroni are very specific in the rest of their record in, in how much time has passed, except for right here. And it it, it just strikes me as somewhat uh, interesting. Uh, because Mormon very easily could have said, and it came to pass in the third month of the 34th year, this happened. And he doesn't. He just It's very, you know, the beginning sometime of the 34th year, and at the end, by the end of some time, he had come. So somewhere in there, he came and he was there for some period of time. Uh, and so just uh, an interesting note to me 
that speaks to the eternal nature of the principles and lessons that the Savior is going to teach as he visits these people. All right, thanks for listening, everyone, to this uh, episode of Come Follow Me, Disciples' Journey, as we discuss chapters 8 through 10 of 3 Nephi. Uh, the next episode will cover 3 Nephi 11. We'll discuss the coming of the Savior and um, the beginning of his time spent with the Nephite people in their presence in the land bountiful. Thanks for listening. I hope you join me in the next episode, and good luck in your studies.